Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. Today, lots of discussion about prevailing winds and hot air. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. What draws those two themes together, Ewan? Well, I love your link, Stephen. That was excellent. <laughs> so this is the second time for this particular piece of legislation that the government has faced a rebellion. And this time it is not about houses, but it's about wind turbines. But actually, it's kind of the, the same side of, of... It's a different side of the same coin, really, in that... Uh, it's not as emotive as building houses in the countryside, but putting wind turbines up does arouse some pretty strong opinions. And it's actually, I think, really plays to a very central dividing line uh, in the Conservative Party between those who want to build more houses and wind turbines, uh, to use the uh, phrase of a recently departed Prime Minister, go for growth, and those Conservatives who really want to conserve things, to conserve our countryside. And not many people disagree that we need more houses, and uh, onshore wind is clean and it's green and it's cheap but when you ask people in nice parts of Suffolk or Sussex if they want them in the next to their village then suddenly uh, the mood changes so this is a really tricky debate for the Conservative Party and it looks like a, a second time that Rishi Sunak is having to back down. Yes with noted noted op- opponents including um, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson are showing up again in the the list of those who are who want who want the ban overturned and essentially appear to have changed their mind and w- that they are now pro onshore wind power. Yes because of course you remember that this is something that the Tories put in place well pretty much back when they came into power in in 2010, they they put a halt to all these uh, n- new onshore wind turbines. We've built virtually none in the last 12 years. And of course, onshore wind uh, is a very, very cheap form of power. And particularly now the gas is super expensive. It's even more competitive, but it is controversial yeah. in beautiful parts of the countryside. But quite prominent in other parts of Europe. So I think it's one of the things that, you know, it's one of those differences that does stand out. It's also worth saying that our colleague Will Mathis has been reporting on research showing that there was local community support for onshore wind farms in many places that's according to um work that's been done by the octopus energy group so obviously uh, from their point of view that supports their side of the argument but it's interesting to see that there is uh some there are some people who would be quite happy to have wind turbines in their area if it meant that it led to lower power bills so that's one side of the hot air related stories that yeah. we're hearing today the other is our our old friend matt hancock uh didn't didn't manage to come out king of the jungle uh, third in line to the throne in the end, which I've had a look and makes him equivalent to Princess Charlotte. <laughs> well, third place is pretty good, isn't it? I think if you'd ask people at the beginning of the series, is Matt, Han- Matt Hancock going to come in the top three? I bet you most people would have said no. Yeah, I mean, look, his whole goal, I suppose, in this, this has essentially torpedoed his political career. You know, he was um, obviously 
kicked out of the Conservative Party as a result of, of deciding to go into the TV show. He said when, when he left that, you know, he wants to show that what he's like as a person um, and, and to kind of challenge preconceived ideas about him. Um, he will, uh, now he, you know, his local Conservative Association said they were disappointed, accused him of a serious area of serious error of judgment and in going into it he's been criticised by uh, his own Conservative colleagues and opposition MPs for being a sitting MP going into a reality TV show now he went in uh, he says to highlight issues of dyslexia um, and that's why he said he will be donating some of the fee that he's gotten for the for participating in the show uh, to a dyslexia charity um, Andrew McDonald from Politico has pointed out that he only mentioned dyslexia three times during the programme or at least oh, that's what made it to air perhaps there were other parts that were edited out also, lots of lots of fun on Twitter about this, as you may be unsurprised to hear. Uh, apparently, there was a, a frog uh, perched on on Matt Hancock's head during a recent episode of the show, and uh, one wag sympathised with the frog, saying, "Imagine having to clean all that off your feet, poor frog." It is a great photo <laughs> of Matt Hancock with that frog uh, on his head. Um, let's bring in. Poor Therese. Let's bring in Therese <laughs> Raphael, our opinion on that, columnist. On that, on that um, note. With, yeah, with absolutely no connection. I don't know. Do you have any strong opinions on Matt no. and his participation? I'm, I'm a celebrity. I am unusually without words, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, clearly Matt Hancock is looking toward um, a very different audience than he was as, as a, you know, as a, as a sitting MP and has maybe found it and you know maybe uh i don't know maybe it's the best of all worlds but uh, clearly he has provided some entertainment at least <laughs> therese we appreciate getting your thoughts on matt hancock i should say to correct myself is that he lost the tory whip he wasn't kicked out of the conservative party uh, over this but let's move on to matters much more serious we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, a piece that you've written about rishi sunak and keir starmer's economic policies which you've likened to bidenomics explain to us what do you mean by that yeah, well, I think we've seen a very unusual, well, in recent times, conversion between the conservatives and labor on economic policy. So where in the past you had some real ideological differences with the Tories uh, supporting either a smaller state or um, either a, a, a state that had more a more limited role in the economy. I think both Sunak and Starmer, both of whom gave speeches before the uh, CBI, the Federation of British Industry Conference last week, very similar things to say. Um, and it looks like, you know, what I call Bidenomics, um, which, you know, some people might might see as sort of old-fashioned uh, Keynesianism, but is essentially, uh, as described by the economist Barry Eichengreen, it, it's, a, it's an econo- economic policy that sees an expanded role for the state. Bear in mind, this is in a country, my, my birth country, the U.S., which uh, has long been suspicious of uh, a large state, but which is sort of, uh, I think, arrived at the point where you know, uh, it's seen as a key to improving competitiveness and addressing sort of long-standing issues that hold back growth, in, in America's case, you know, racial inequity. Applied to Britain, it's, it's very interesting because I think you know, the UK starts from a very different base. We now have... Uh, the public sector on track to consume over 43% of GDP, highest taxes uh, as a percentage of GDP since World War II. And, you know, I think what we're seeing from both Tory and Labour leader is an acknowledgement that there just very, you know, isn't very much room for, uh, uh, for creativity and economic policy. Taxes are going to be high. Spending is high. 
And therefore, the only real difference between them, and there are a few on the, on the taxation side we can get to, the only real difference between them is, you know, kind of how they will deliver on this, uh, on the public spending pledges. It's on competence and delivery and sort of the fine points of economic policy. We're basically, you know, at a stage where both parties are camped on the center ground of British politics as it's now construed. Yeah, I think this is this is really interesting stuff. So on so many of the uh, of the big issues of today on 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 Brexit, Labour Party would like a closer relationship with the EU, but they, they can't say it on immigration. They probably feel that uh, I think this goes for some of the Tory party as well. More immigration from certain groups would be useful for the economy, but they can't say it. And on the size of the state, clearly Labour Party would like to spend more on public services, but there is little scope a little desire for for higher taxes. So th- this does feel to me like a sort of a, a boxing in on, on the economic side, for, you know, for, for, for Labour. Yeah, and I, I think Labour's got the problem that, you know, if they're not going to offer something radically different from the Tories, or even, you know, noticeably different, what, you know, what really is the incentive to vote Labour? Now, for some voters, it will just simply be, you know, to get rid of the government that's been in power um, you know, for the last 12 years and has made some colossal errors, that might be enough. But it's, it's, it's risky for Keir Starmer to rest on that, uh, you know, that sort of sentiment alone. He will need to offer something different on economic policy. He's accepted a lot of the constraints uh, embedded in the Office of Budget Responsibility Report. So, you know, I think that's the challenge for labor. Uh, and they're quite alive to it. The, the you know, bringing on Jim O'Neill, um, you know, who worked in, in uh, a couple of conservative governments, obviously the cross-bench peer now and former chief economist of Goldman Sachs, to advise on how to improve business conditions is Labor's way of saying, we are alive to the needs of business, we'll, we'll do things differently. Um, for the Tories, the problem is, is really different because they seem to have, in many ways, overcorrected for the errors of Liz Truss. And they, uh, Jeremy Hunt and Keir Starmer are... In, in a way, in a, in a in a fiscal corner, because they're committed to, you know, higher taxation, higher levels of spending, and yet this is still a party that believes in, uh, you know, in, in reducing the size of the state to allow more scope for enterprise. And the way they're trying to square that circle is to say, um, again, in a in a nod to Bidenomics and Janet Yellen's new supply side uh, economics that she modern supply side theory, I think, is what she called it. Um, you know, it's a focus on infrastructure, education, R&D spending. It's not, yeah. you know, this is something we've heard before, but again, it relies on delivery. Therese, is this actually a bad thing for the country, dare I say it, that it might actually result in some stability? I think it does result in stability and economic policy making, you know, in the round, in the sense that, you know, the broad contours of, of the, the role of the state um, is pretty stable and, and, you know, arguably... Uh, Britain really needs that now. There is a consensus. I think the problem that I have with it is that I don't see any way um, to get to uh, the kind of sustainable, robust economic growth that both parties say they want. We've seen, you know, very low levels of business investing, uh, obviously low levels of productivity compared to uh, Britain's peers. Uh, And, you know, the UK, as we heard last week is the second weakest performer in the world's major economies uh, in terms of economic growth um, next year. So they still have to come up with a way to restart growth, 
maybe that does lie in, you know, these, this, this magic trio of infrastructure, education, R&D spending. Mm-hmm. But as we're seeing with these planning, uh, you know, debates within the Tories, this isn't a, it's, it's not straightforward how you do that. Um, so, you know, I think that there, there is hope, but the, the way to growth isn't entirely clear. Lovely to get your view. That's uh, Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael. You can read uh, Therese's work on the Bloomberg terminal and on the website. Now, discounts for home buyers look like they're back on the cards as the UK's housing market shows further signs of slowing down. New data from property website Zoopla shows that for the first time in 18 months, agreed sale prices are now below asking prices. The average discount was 2.4%. That's the biggest since January of 2021. Earlier, we spoke to Richard Donnell, Executive Director for Research at Zoopla, about his expectations for how that discount will grow in the coming months. Ever since the mini-budget, there's been quite a big sort of fallout for demand in the UK housing market. Um, demand's down 44% um, in the last six weeks or so. And sales have actually fallen by a less amount. But in order to achieve a sale, sellers are having to be um, you know, more realistic about the price uh, they can achieve as buyers get more concerned about the outlook for mortgage rates. And so the last 18 months or so, we've seen sellers effectively getting close to 100% of the asking price they put their house on the market at. And as you say, in the last few weeks, in order to get sales, um, sellers are having to get accept bigger discounts. So um, we expect that gap to widen. I think if the gap gets towards five or six percent, then that's actually more consistent with prices actually falling at a headline level. Richard, is it not just people pricing in a discount knowing that people are going to want to bag a deal or feel like they've bagged a deal? Well, the discount to asking is effectively, you know, they're going to, that's what they have to accept to get a price. I think there's a wider story happening, slightly separate, which is, you know, 20 yeah, quarter of all homes listed on Zoopla have had their price reduced um, since the mini budget, um, 11% by more than 5%. So I think sellers, you're absolutely right, are realising that the market dynamics have changed. And if you're serious about moving, you, you have to adjust your price. And I think the greater and deeper the repricing of asking prices, then um, the more that supports the market in the first part of 2023. Okay. Um, I'm wondering in terms of mortgage offers. We've been talking a lot about, of course, increased mortgage costs, a huge factor in this. People have mortgage offers from before rates went through the roof over the mini budget. They're going to expire in the next few months. Is there a cliff edge approaching there? Well, there definitely is. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we've seen such a big you know, drop in new, new interest from buyers. If you haven't got a mortgage and you're not serious about moving, then you're sort of almost step back from the market. I think there's going to be a step up in mortgage rates. I think yeah, one of the key numbers for us is sort of where do, where do mortgage rates, you know, for say a five-year fixed rate, start at the beginning of next year. You know, we've seen the five-year swap rate uh, fall quite significantly since the mini budget. I think it's just under four percent now. So I think you know, we're expecting mortgage rates um, to start in the sort of four point seven five to five percent um, area in January. Um, that's still much more than people were paying earlier this year, but it's much better than six and a half percent. So I think, you know, demand's definitely going to be weaker in the first part of next year. Um, but again, I think consumers are probably going to have to accept, um, it's how quickly consumers accept that, you know, 4 to 5% mortgage rates are the norm, not 1% to 2% that we've seen in, in recent years. And how big of a house price correction do you see in 2023? And how long do you think it will take? 
I think um, we think house we think UK headline house prices will fall by up to five percent. I think it could be above that in in London, the south of England, because um, that's where higher mortgage rates are going to hit affordability the most. Um, and I think I don't think it's about prices rebounding. I think we're just set for a prolonged period now of just of low house price inflation um, as the market adjusts to. Uh, to, to higher borrowing costs, basically. But we just don't see where the forced sellers are coming through from to sort of really push prices lower. Slightly more optimistic about transaction volumes. We think they're going to fall next year to 1 million. Um, but I think, you know, pandemic factors, the bo- bo- boom in retirement, cost of living pressures, there's a rapid increase in rents is going to keep sort of first-time buyers coming to the market. So we see less downside for transaction volumes, surprisingly. Um, and uh, But yes, overall prices down 5% next year. And Richard, very nerdily, I've been looking back through previous house price corrections. And in the 1950s, what's interesting is that a spike in unemployment isn't a prerequisite for house prices to fall. I wonder whether this time, even if the recession doesn't get so bad that loads of people lose their jobs, could you still see what you're talking about, this 5% correction? How tied is it to, to unemployment? Well, I think interestingly, the, I mean, unemployment is going to go up, but the labour market still remains um, pretty tight. I think, you know, the big, other big difference is for me, banks, you know, retail banks are ring fenced now. Their, their business is mortgage lending. Um, you know, their profits are going to increase off the back of rates going up. And so, you know, they're expected to sort of work with customers, I think. So banks banks um, have a slightly different approach to working with mortgage customers when they fall into difficulties. That could mean moving people onto interest only, extending terms, etc. So I think, um, it, you know, every every recession is different. Uh, but I think, you know, it's you're right. We don't have to see unemployment going up. I think unemployment rising fast is a, is, a, is quite important. Uh, and I also think how much house prices almost rise and get overpriced in the run up to a downturn is also important to the sort of subsequent downside. So that's why we're at that sort of minus five percent next year. But it's a prolonged period of low growth thereafter. When you talk about a million property transactions next year, how much of a fall is that? And I'm wondering, is that people just deciding not to sell, take their take their properties off the market? Are you seeing that already being played out in the data? No, I think, so look, a million, a million sales next year is, is going to be down about 20%, 25% from the 1.3 this year. Um, and um, again, we haven't had a lot of, you know, the pandemic has led to a lot of movement. Um, again, there's a debate about how how sort of unnecessary all that movement was, but I think a lot of it is sort of life related, people wanting to relocate to different areas. Um, when actually seeing more homes coming on the market at the moment, I, I still think there's a, this uh, you know there's a there's a group of people still interested in moving, would like to move, not for speculative reasons, but purely for life stage reasons. Say this big spike in retirement that we've seen, um, cost of living pressures. Um, people that want to buy because they want to avoid very high rental growth, thinking, well, I can be more flexible in where I live. So I think, um, you know, we could have marked down transactions more, um, you know, um, after the global financial crisis, I think transactions got down to 850,000. So we still see an underlying desire of households to move, um, but it's certainly going to be much lower than it has been in the last couple of years. And Richard, what, if anything, do you want the government to do about all this? Because it seems every time the government in- intervenes in the housing market, someone loses. That's right. I think, um, well, I think the, the main message is that we want the government to create sort of just a st- stable economic background um, for the housing market to operate in. Um, I think that that's the most important thing. Um, uh, I think, um, 
you know, that, that, that is the most important thing. I think the, most, the other thing is really to increase housing supply. You know, we need to get more homes built in this country. Um, we've got a real, the bigger crisis in the housing market is in the rental market. So we need policies around, you know, what is the role of the rented sector in a healthy housing market? And we also need to get more homes built as well as having a, a stable economy. Well, that was Richard Donnell, Executive Director for Research at Zoopla, speaking to Lizzie Burden and I a little bit earlier. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's just one piece of data, isn't it? But there are increasing signs of a a slowdown coming in the property market. And if you look at globally, a lot of countries are already quite a long way down this path, aren't they? You know, New Zealand, uh, Sweden, Canada, the US. Well, as we were hearing from Richard there, I mean, the the effect on mortgage rates, the mini budget is really the catalyst that's seen this all of a sudden tip in a very determined direction as he sees it. We're getting two other pieces of data this week as well on the housing market, which was worth watching out for as well. We'll have the mortgage approvals figures from the Bank of England out tomorrow. And then later in the week, we'll have the nationwide house price index as well. That's also expected to show a continuing slowdown month on month in prices too. But look, I mean, what Richard was saying there is that he's expecting house prices to fall by around 5% next year. Bloomberg Economics sees that more in the region of around 10%. There are other estimates out there as well that see it as bigger or smaller, depending on who you ask around this as well. And look, this is, as as we were hearing, this is a political issue. This is something the government is going to worry about, partly because, you know, it's one of those issues that it's going to come up clearly towards the next uh, election. And then there'll be questions asked about home building targets. And there'll be questions asked about whether or not the right policy is being put in place not to overstimulate a market either. Something that perhaps you could level at some of the policies implemented under this government. Yeah, I think it's hugely important politically. I mean, only uh, a surprisingly small proportion of the country actually have mortgages. But for those people, when they come to renew their mortgages, and it is hundreds and hundreds of pounds more expensive, which it will be whatever the government does, uh, that is going to reflect badly on the government. Whether it is their fault or not, people will blame the government when they have a massive hit uh, in their pockets. So I think uh, the government will be uh, have to keep uh, a very close eye on this. Yeah, certainly will. Um, a couple of things that we're keeping a close eye on as we look towards some of the events happening in politics later in the week. Sports Minister Stuart Andrew heading to Qatar today. He'll be there for the England-Wales match tomorrow. Uh, he says he'll be assessing for himself how local government authorities uh, are meeting their commitments that everyone's welcome at the World Cup. Of course, that in the context of the controversy over the treatment of LGBT plus people in uh, Qatar as well. Um, plenty going through Parliament too. Of course, Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. There's also the all stages of the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill going to be coming to the House tomorrow and that is related to the fact that they're going to push back the deadline for when an election has to be held in Northern Ireland. Well, that is up. That is it for us today. If you like the programme, don't forget you can subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitt. Marufal Hussain was on sound. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 